Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Tesla. Tesla and its effort to go private has involved Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. The company is uh, considering a major investment in Tesla that would be uh, over $200 billion. And, um, well, $200 billion in assets is what the uh, public investment fund currently has, and they have already purchased apparently a 5% stake in Tesla. Why would Saudi Arabia want to be investing in a company that makes electric cars when the main export of Saudi Arabia happens to be oil. Here to tell us is Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting, also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. Dr. Wald, thanks for being here in our 1130 studio. So why would Saudi Arabia which depends on its oil revenue to fund the government and its various social programs, as well as a variety of other things, why would their public investment fund want to be investing in a company that is doing everything it can to make oil obsolete? There, there are really two reasons for this that, that I see. The first is that the PIF is really the creation of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and his Vision 2030 um, plan to really um, diversify the kingdom economically. And the PIF is really into investing in tech companies. So they see Tesla as one of these up-and-coming tech companies that they want to invest in. Then you have the electric vehicle component. And the idea, or at least what the prince has said, is that he'd like to basically hedge against oil. He wants to invest in other energy, uh, alternative energies, because someday he believes that Saudi Arabia will either run out of oil or oil won't be useful anymore. So he sees this as a hedge against that. Now, the big question is really, does the PIF even have enough money to make this investment to take Tesla private? Wait, and wait, wait, wait. This is important because I thought that the that this fund was massive and had endless money. Ah, well, it is massive, but they've made a lot of investments and they have a lot of their money tied up in non-liquid assets. So right now they own most of the Saudi, the national petrochemical company, Sabic. And apparently they'd like to sell that to their national oil company, Aramco, to gain more liquidity to make more investments. So the money is actually really tied up. And so they're going to have to either put more money in or they're going to have to sell some of their assets assets to do, to do this potential Tesla deal. That's fascinating. Do you have a sense of how much cash they have? How much liquid uh, money they have? Not at the moment. It's really unclear because they can always put more in, it seems, if they want. But their budget is skyrocketing. And so they're using a lot of their money to, um, you know, to, to fund their government and to fund their, their budget. So it's really uh, an issue of, of can they do this? And there are some sources that say that that the Saudi PIF is, is not necessarily all in on this Tesla deal. Is it also true that Saudi Arabia is putting a lot of money behind solar 
energy or energy obviously derived from the sun? Don't they have an uh, investment in SoftBank with Mashiyoshi-san in order to bring solar power to the kingdom? Yeah, and this has been a really uh, long time coming issue for Saudi Arabia. In fact, the uh, oil company there was actually using solar power back in the 1970s to power kind of far out installations. But Ali al-Naimi, who was the former oil minister, had this vision that Saudi Arabia would become an exporter of solar power because they have so much desert and so much sun. Uh, The fact is that it's taken a bit longer. He originally talked about this, uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, and they're just now starting to contract to build these solar installations. But it's really a project that they are hoping to uh, to bring to the kingdom. The question really, though, is if they want to be a solar power exporter, they've got to have better battery technology because the technology just isn't there yet. All right. Well, so we're talking about Saudi Arabia and how they're trying to plug the gap in their budget right now. And I'm sure that the recent fall in oil prices isn't really helping them. And I want to talk about the oil market a little bit more and the dynamics there, because we have seen, you know, Turkey's issues. They're a huge oil importer. What are you seeing as far as the likely backdrop going forward? Do you think that the uh, price pressure is going to be more to the upside or the downside? It really depends right now. We're definitely in a place where we're much more in balance in terms of supply and demand. And that means that any geopolitical event can affect oil prices much more than it could before when there was more cushion in the oil market. So right now, Saudi Arabia actually in June uh, produced a lot more oil because they thought they'd have room to sell more oil. But they actually found out that they didn't quite have the customers for it. So then in July, they cut back on their production because they couldn't sell all their oil, which is kind of surprising given the incredible push that Donald Trump was making to get more oil on the market to prevent prices from going up. Now, Turkey's issue is that Turkey is this huge importer of oil. It gets a lot of its oil actually from Iran. And with its currency depreciating as it has, a lot of the oil it's buying is going to be much more expensive for Turkey. And so that may push Turkey towards importing more Iranian oil if the Iranians are willing to sell it to Turkey for lower prices. I'm glad you mentioned Iran because Iran and Saudi Arabia, they don't like each other very much. At least their governments don't, correct? No, they don't. And in fact, there's going to be probably a bit of a showdown uh, in the uh, oil realm between Iran and Saudi Arabia coming up at the next um, OPEC monitoring committee meeting where Saudi Arabia and Russia and the other members of the committee are going to get together and monitor just how much oil is being produced. And apparently Iran has said, Iran's not a member of this committee, but its oil minister has said he's going to the meeting and he is not going away without a fight. Uh, Just real quick, I was looking at the production capacity in U.S. oil producers, and it's been going up dramatically. Do you think that the likely uh, response to this will be greater investment, or do you think that it means that uh, oil prices are going to go down? I think we're in a place where they could could head either way, depending. We saw oil prices go down uh, the other day because there was a massive build in inventory in the United States. But it really does depend. There's news that there are... um, a bunch of shale oil producers that are not going to be increasing production because of there's um, infrastructure constraints they're facing. The U.S. has not exported as much oil uh, in the last month as it had before. So we're really kind of on this cusp where it could go either way. 
Dr. Ellen Waltz, thank you so much. We always love having you. She's president of Transversal Consulting, also non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. After a wild ride, the Turkish lira is continuing to recover a bit versus the dollar today. Is the stability enough for investors to buy? Joining us now is Michelle Dineshi, Portfolio Manager for Vedra Partners Limited in London. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for being with us. You have an incredible amount of experience uh, investing in equity derivatives and emerging markets, going back to Lehman Brothers. Looking at this scenario, is Turkey flashing a huge buy signal, given how much its assets have been beaten up right now? Well, first of all, it depends which asset class you're talking about. But uh, uh, clearly, when it went to seven uh, to the dollar and uh, interest rates went to high 20s, it started becoming attractive uh, to investors on a risk reward basis. you know, however, there is fundamental problems with the Turkish situation as we speak, given the high debt levels in dollar terms, and that's not going to go away. And the the confidence of the market on the ability of the central bank to control inflation is simply not there for a long-term turnaround and a long-term investment. Okay. So just to to point out that that was one, two, three days ago that we were seeing the Turkish lira at seven (laughs) versus the dollar. Um, Right now we're we're like 5.8, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, you know, talking about let's say, equities. Uh, Turkish equities have gotten really beaten up, in particular, their financial uh, industry. What what about in that area? Are there opportunities there, or given the fact that you do see a wider set of issues here, are those set for, for more declines and even a potential failure? I, I think I think the, the, the situation requires a slowdown in the economy. Whatever you see it, either the crisis continues, and uh, and you get a natural slowdown in the economy or the interest rates are hiked uh, in the classic orthodox way to deal with the inflation and the market uh, uh, loss of confidence in the authorities. So either way, you're going to see a slowdown. And when you see a slowdown, you tend to see a rise in MPLs, uh, although the banks are well capitalized and well regulated by BRSA. Uh, you just never know how high the MPLs go, as we've seen in other countries like Italy, Spain, Greece. MPLs can go much higher than in the last uh, crisis, 2008, when they went to 5-6% MPL rates. If they start getting close to 10%, then these banks do need capitalization, uh, and therefore the equity investments I would say, would be at the right time when they need the recapitalization rather than now. What is positive for the Turkish um, situation is obviously that the the sovereign's debt level is relatively low compared to some of these other countries like mentioned, like Italy, Spain, or, or Greece, for example, at 30% debt to GDP. There is some room for sovereign support and bailout. Michelle, as someone that helps to manage the money of high net worth families, 
if you were going to plan a trip in the fall to go to Turkey to prospect for potential investments, what kinds of meetings would you want to have lined up with what kinds of companies? Would it be the banking industry or would it be things like conglomerates and consumer staples? I mean, uh, given this, the, 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 the weaker lira is a necessity to balance, rebalance the economy, I would say the exporters would be the highest beneficiaries. So the exporters would be the ones I'll be most comfortable with to make investments in. Uh, and, and, and the let's say the banks, which do have a backstop, either be it a strong parent or 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 uh, unrelated entity which can uh, support the bank in case they do need recapitalization so looking for some of their uh, bonds which are now yielding 11 12 13% in dollars which i think could be attractive if you know that there is a backstop so I'm just wondering, broadening out here, given the fact that we did see uh, emerging market currencies track that of Turkey during its swoon, I'm wondering how worried you are at this point, just in general, about the developing markets, and in particular, the equity markets, which have been uh, really tied to currencies. I, you know, I think you have to go back and see, okay, what, what is leading all of this? And that's probably what's going on in the U.S., be it the strong dollar or the end of QE, or more importantly at the moment, is the, the, the trade wars. I think these are the, the real triggers rather than Turkey triggering uh, the problem in the rest of developing markets. So if you see some kind of um, uh, alleviation of the problem, for example, the trade war with the U.S.-China coming down, then I think emerging markets are in a much better position, or if the dollar has stabilized, then emerging markets would be a much stronger position regardless where Turkey is. Thank you very much for being with us. Michelle Daneshi is a portfolio manager for Vedra Partners Limited. They are based in London, where they help manage the assets of wealthy individual families. I want to focus on one of the best things that I've read all week. It is a study done by our own Shira Ovide, a technology columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, taking a look at tech companies that have gone public in recent years and finding out how many of them are actually cash flow positive now. Joining us now is the own, the one and only Shira Ovide uh, of Bloomberg Opinion. So Shira, can you just talk a little bit about what you found? Right. So I looked at... U.S. tech companies that have gone public on U.S. stock exchanges since the beginning of 2010, and it was something like 150 companies that have gone public in those eight-plus years and are still um, independent companies. And of those, about one, about four in ten, so 37 percent, I believe, of those companies was had negative cash from operations in the most recent 12-month period, which I found surprisingly high. Now, the, the those 150 companies, it includes some companies that have gone public, obviously, recently in, in this year, but also companies that have been public for eight years, 
Um, and some of those companies are also burning cash, surprisingly. Okay, so it's what's interesting to me about this is that U.S. tech companies have been notably reluctant to go public, and the vast majority of startups have remained private for a far longer time than many people have thought uh, that they've needed to, uh, just based on history. So what does this finding suggest to you about all those private unicorns out there? Yeah, I mean, I we don't know the the financials of private tech companies, but there's something like 260 uh, private technology companies valued at a billion dollars or more. This is an unprecedented valuation of uh, tech companies from sort of uh, Uber to Airbnb and beyond that are would be very largely large cap um, uh, public companies if they were public. I. I would venture to guess that a fraction of those companies are cash flow positive at this point. And at some point, they're going to be public companies, and then their cash burn is the problem of public company investors. And the best example we have of that right now is Snapchat, which went public 18 months ago. Literally, when I saw the cash flow statement, when I saw the financial statements at Snapchat uh, when they filed to go public, I didn't believe my eyes that the, the company had. Um, was burning more cash than it generated in revenue um, in the year before it went public. And, you know, those, the cash burn has gotten slightly better, but still it is burning significant, significant amounts of cash and likely will for several more years, which means that now public companies have to fund, public company investors have to fund those losses. Is it worth noting that cash flow really just measures the changes in the money that's available for the company to use. You could have a variety of different reasons for this negative cash flow, correct? I mean, the the reason to have negative, the company has negative cash from operations is you're generating less cash every quarter than it costs to run your business. Correct. So... Uh, again, but it could be for a variety of sure, different reasons. Sure. It could and be because the company is continuously investing. acquiring Absolutely. or investing totally. or spending money on R and D or anything like that. Absolutely well, right. Okay, but hold on a second. But we have actually one example, particularly in the private space, Uber. We just saw some information from them. Can you just talk about why they're burning through cash so quickly? Well, we don't really know because Uber releases financial statements, but they're cherry picked financial statements without any context. But if you look at the scope of Uber, it it it's investing in lots of things. It has obviously their core business of rides on demand. It's investing in scooters and uh, bicycles in cities and flying cars and driverless cars and restaurant food delivery and um, fr- matching freight. Uh, demand and supply, all of, and investing in multiple countries all over the world, and those are potentially promising business opportunities. But they also are enormous drain on cash. And Uber, for example, uh, it had negative cash from operations of 1.3 billion dollars in the last 12 months. So again, that's a story as a company that has. Uh, been funded by investors to grow, to invest in growth opportunities, and that is exactly what it has done. But at some point, of course, all companies have to finance themselves. Other companies include Pandora Media, right? Yeah, exactly. Blue Apron. The the big surprise to me was that there are some companies in that analysis uh, of of companies that have gone public since 2010 that were old. Pandora Media went public in 2011, 
right? And um, it has been inconsistently cash flow positive, but it is now again burning cash. And that's not a young company, right? And it's hard to argue at this point that it's a growth company. It's just a company that has never been able to finance itself through cash generated by its own business. All right. I feel like we have to touch on a news item that crossed, I guess, late last night that I thought was kind of interesting that Amazon is trying to get further into the brick and mortar movie theater business. Kind of confusing to me. Why? Yeah, me too. Uh, I don't have a great answer for you. But as you said, our colleagues reported uh, last night that uh, Amazon is among the potential bidders for the landmark movie theater chain, which is mostly kind of independent kind of cinema um, movie theaters. And it's interesting that we're now starting to see some of the companies that have done home uh, streaming video entertainment, including Netflix, become maybe a little bit more interested in movie theaters. And honestly, I, I, I cannot confess to understanding it. Maybe there's some kind of connection Amazon sees between its Prime subscription program and offering people kind of movie theater tickets or a movie pass like That's subscription service. Idea. I don't know. And like the experience, right? You never know, right? They got 50 theaters. They've got high-profile locations, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco. They've got about 250 screens in all. I, I mean, to me, what this story shows is just how um, ambitious and maybe unpredictable Amazon is that um, for better or for worse, it is hard to know exactly all of the things that Amazon wants to do in the future and maybe movie theaters is on their list yeah and indeed uh just to make a note that landmark is currently owned by uh wagner yep. cuban companies right, right? that's, that's mark, the uh, mark, mark cuban. cuban and uh, todd wagner right yeah um no estimate as to actually how much this would uh this would cost right Yes, no, and our story did not have estimates uh, about the price tag. Um, again, I, from investors' standpoint, they probably won't care, wouldn't be material to Amazon, but it's still weird. Okay. Thank you very much. Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Opinion columnist for all things technology. We encourage you to read her columns. Recycling. Recycling in the United States, well, it is under some specific challenges. For example, about a thousand recycling centers and processing plants have shut down in California alone. Here to tell us more about the industry and the business is Davina Rankin, Chief Financial Officer for Waste Management. They're based in Houston, but she joins us here in our 1130 studios. Davina, thank you very much for being here. Is there a crisis in the world of recycling in the United States? What I would say is it's an opportunity. You know, where we are is that China has closed down its demand for some of the product that we were selling. But today, we are actually only putting about 3% of the material that we process through our facilities into China. We've looked for other markets and we've successfully found homes for the products. But isn't this because China has deemed a lot of the recycled material contaminated? And they've been talking about this for a long time. Plus, if you own a landfill, you're still going to make money if you don't recycle because that stuff will just go to a landfill anyway. 
So they're all great questions. What I would start with is contamination is a big problem, and contamination is something that we've been working on proactively for a long time. We're taking further steps today, and that includes ensuring that our customers take some responsibility for contamination too. And so what we need each of the consumers to understand is they've got to stop putting the dirty pizza boxes in the recycling container. Those needs to need to go in the trash. We need to be sure that the recycling that we get in that green container is, is a clean resource that we can then sell to our customers. What's important though about thinking about waste management is while we are a the leading landfill service provider in the country, recycling is an important part of our business. And so we're committed to that business, but we're doing so in a way that we ensure that it's both environmentally sustainable and economically sustainable. Has there been discussion about expanding the U.S.'s ability to recycle things here without shipping it over to China or another country? So what's interesting is actually all of our plastics are are closed loop. We we manage all of our plastics here domestically. And so all of the plastics that we process through our facilities, we then sell to customers here. The same is true for metals. Now, those two things are relatively small in the grand scheme of things with regard to the overall material we manage. We're, we're certainly looking for more domestic outlets uh, for paper and fiber, and, and we find those. We're proactive about that. But International markets have been good customers, and we're continuing to find the right balance between domestic and international. I want to shift gears when you talk about all of the processing involved here. I think about the amount of labor that's involved. And we've been talking extensively about the tight labor market and how there just is a shortage of workers. I'm wondering, how has your company experienced that, and what have you done to counter it? You know, we have 43,000 employees across the waste management network. So we're a large employer of U.S. and Canadian people. And and what's important to us is being an employer of choice and being a great place to work. We're actually celebrating one of our employees will be retiring at the end of the year, and he spent 46 years with waste management. That doesn't happen at a lot of places. We have a special culture, and it's ensuring that we're investing in our people, making sure that they see career growth opportunities at the company, but also seeing that it's just a great place to be and we do great, exciting things for our customers and our environment. Speak, if you can, about volume and price increases, because didn't that lead you to raise your guidance for the year? It absolutely did. Um, We've had the best organic revenue growth that this company really has ever seen. So we're seeing that organic growth on both price and volume. And in in the past, this industry would have believed you could only get one, not not both, in in conjunction with each other. And, And we're proving that that's the case. And the strength of solid waste is really what led us to confidently raise our guidance at the end of our second quarter. Have you had to increase, I just want to go back to the jobs issue for a second, because I'm wondering, you know, there's been this conundrum in the market. When will we see wages increase materially beyond sort of the rate of inflation, which we really have not seen over the past year? And I'm wondering from your vantage point, are you finding that you're having to pay people more to come in the doors and be an employee at your company? So we're, we're taking this on from two different vantage points. We were one of the companies that decided to give special bonuses to our employees with the cash inflows from tax reform. And so at the end of 2018, each of our employees who's not eligible for incentive compensation will receive a $2,000 bonus. But in addition to that, we work hard to make sure that their wages are competitive. And so while we always see some level of wage inflation, we're, we're keeping that 
as as closely as we can to something that we watch and ensure is covered by our price increases. Does the uh, sort of uncertain backdrop with respect to immigration affect you at all? You know, no, because we've always been sure that we employ U.S. citizens. And and at this point, that's something that continues to be important to us. And and we will focus on that over the long term. Just to give you some chances to speak about standardized labeling when it comes to recycling. Wouldn't that does that sounds like a very straightforward kind of thing. Why don't we have that in the United States? You know, the way I would think about that is you don't have a standardized label on your bowling ball that says don't put it in the recycling facility, but you, you at your gut know that your bowling ball doesn't need to go to one of our facilities to be recycled. So I'm not sure that the standardized label will get us the result that we want. It comes down to personal responsibility and accountability. And really what we're finding is that if there are fees for contamination, people will become more responsible. That sounds about right. You can't really rely on people to just sort of uh, individually just say to themselves, you know what, today I'm going to be responsible. You just have to hit them where it hurts, right, Pim? Just don't drop the bowling ball on your foot. <laughs> Davina Rankin, thank you so much for being with us. Davina Rankin is Chief Financial Officer for Waste Management based in Houston, Texas. Davina, thank you so much for being with us. Really important issue uh, and fascinating to look at. And uh, Pim, here's to hoping that everybody takes a little more responsibility with their pizza boxes. Yes, don't, go, don't go. put them in your in the in the recycling if they're dirty. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PNL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 